We are, if you're new, we've been walking through the study known or called, the book called uh, The Good and Beautiful God. We have, remind, we have remembered that God is good, that He is trustworthy, that He is generous, that He is love, and that He is holy. Today, we remember that God is self-sacrificing, which means that God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love for us, as complicated and as flawed as we are, is very costly for Him. Today we remember God is self-sacrificing, meaning that God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love for us is terribly costly to Him. My father was slapped by a black bear, and I saw it happen. We were in the Smoky Mountains on that winding road between uh, Cherokee and um, Gatlinburg. And um, now in those days, this was when I was about first grade, there were lots of black bears there. It was not uncommon to see black bears. But usually, if you're on that road, you know, between Gatlinburg and Cherokee, you know that road, many of you do, uh, there would already be what they called a bear jam instead of a, a traffic jam. Already, people would have seen the bear pulled over, and we'd be one of lots of people and a long way from the bear. But this time, we were the first ones to see the bear. It was in a big clearing, one of those big places where they had... Uh, cleared things out so that cars could pull over. And my dad spotted the bear and he whipped into that big clearing and he wanted me, his little boy, to have a good close-up view of the bear. And my mom always had snacks for me in the front seat. He grabbed cookies and one by one began to throw the cookies from our car uh, toward the bear in an attempt to lure the bear closer so that I could get a good look at the bear. And it worked. And uh, the bear kept getting closer and closer. In fact, got so close that uh, he literally reared up and put his paws on the roof of our car and reached in. I don't think he was attacking. I literally think uh, he just, daddy was just a little too slow with the cookies. And the bear reached in and with his claw, he caught my father uh, right there in his, uh, the, his eyebrow, his left eyebrow. And of course, with that huge claw, it was a terrible gash. My dad uh, rolled up the window. And by the way, some of you don't know what that means, but this means that <laughs> before there were electric windows, you did this and it took forever and it rolled, you rolled up the window. And we sped away. My dad was bleeding and... Um, and I remember a, uh, a conversation between my parents about going to the hospital. And my dad saying, I can't go to the hospital because it's illegal to feed the bears and I might get in trouble. And so we went to a service station. And by the way, in those days, all the, all the restrooms were outside. Remember, you had to go in and get a key and then go out to the service station. So my dad did. He, had, he changed shirts. He put multiple Band-Aids on his um, on his eyebrow that had been so badly cut. And in, in fact, later, uh, it, it left such a scar that he had to go into the hospital and had that scar uh, removed. That's, that's a story for another day. But 
the ironic thing is that my dad was doing ni a nice thing for the bear. He was feeding the bear cookies. Granted, we were probably parked near a big sign that read, do not feed uh, the bears. And, um, and cookies, I'm sure, are not health food for uh, bears. But my dad was being nice. He was, he was giving cookies to the bear when the bear uh, clawed the eye of the, the one who fed him. And bears are not the only ones who will do such things. Humans will do such things too. Sometimes good people try to help people and get slapped in the process and get scarred in the process. Lots of times people with very good intentions will reach out to do something kind for someone that they think is a, a good gesture when that gesture is not appreciated and people have been hurt, rebuffed, scarred, slapped, all in an effort to do something good. If you love long enough and deeply enough and widely enough, you too will be hurt. To love is to make oneself vulnerable. When I was in the 10th grade, a, a European rock group, rock and roll group titled Nazareth or named Nazareth saying, love hurts, love scars, love wounds and mars. Love is like a cloud, holds a lot of rain. Love hurts. Ooh, love hurts. Which brings us to our text. Philippians 2 speaks of the sacrificing, self-sacrificing love of God. One picture, by the way, you'll remember of God's self-sacrificing is in Isaiah 53 where it says he was despised and rejected by humankind. Another, John 1, 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And today we read this moving text from Philippians chapter 2. Follow along. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being very nature in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love for us, as complicated and flawed as we are, is very costly for him. We're going to look at two phrases from that text in Philippians. The first being that God the Son made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Let's be clear, there is one God. But this one God always and forever has existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. We speak of the Trinity. The first person of the Trinity, God the Father. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son. The third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. Three in one, one in three. And the story of Christmas is the story of God the Son becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It is the story of, 
the Prince of Heaven, laying aside His glory, wrapping Himself in humanity, and becoming one of us. It's the story of the Prince of Heaven laying aside His regal robe, hanging it, in, hanging it in Heaven's closet, saying to His angelic attendants, I'll be back for that, and then becoming a fetus in a virgin womb to become one of us. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. The infinite one became the infant one. The great I am became the tiny who's he. On the river walk in Richmond, Virginia, there is a monument to Henry Box Brown. The monument is in the shape of a crate, a shipping crate. That is two feet by two and a half feet by three feet. Henry Brown was born around 1815 on a plantation in Louisa County, Virginia. When he was about 15 years old, the owner of the plantation, his master, and it is a painful thing even to say that, but his master died and his sons, the sons of the master, decided to divide up all the property, which included, of course, the slaves. Henry Brown was taken from his parents and his siblings Bought by a man who had slaves in Richmond, Henry was taken from his family and moved from Louisa County to Richmond. There, eventually, he met and fell in love with and then married another slave, a woman named Nancy, only known as Nancy. Nancy and Henry Brown had three children. But, in 18, but they had different owners. The owner of Nancy was different from the owner of Henry. And keeping families together was not a priority for people who owned people. And so in 1848, the owner of Nancy decided to move her and the kids to South Carolina and took them from Henry. And his master, of course, insisted he stay in Richmond. Henry had lost his family a second time. Henry Brown decided he'd had enough, that he would escape the horrors of slavery. So on the morning of June, excuse me, March 23, 1848, he and his friend, a white shoemaker named Stephen Smith, took that crate. Henry Brown folded himself self up. They said he was 5'8 and 200 pounds. They, he folded himself up into a two and a half by two and a half feet by two feet by two and a half feet by three feet crate. And Stephen Shoemaker, no, no, Stephen, it wasn't Shoemaker, he was a Shoemaker. Stephen Smith closed the crate and stamped it um, dry goods. The address on the crate was an office in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. There were four members of the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia looking for that crate. So the shoemaker, Mr. Smith, took the crate to the B&O Railroad office in Richmond, and it was loaded onto a train. Inside, Henry Brown had a little bit of water and a few crackers. And after a tumultuous journey, the crate arrived at the office in Philadelphia, where four members of the Underground Railroad took the top off. And Henry Brown, always now to be known as Box Brown, was freed. Now that makes sense to me. After all he had experienced, 
After the horrors of slavery, it makes sense to me that somebody would go to such trouble, even put themselves at such risk to become free. What does not make sense to me is why someone who is free would go to such a great deal of trouble and take such risks to become a slave. Why would a prince give up heaven itself to be born in a cave full of sheep and laid in a, a feeding trough, born in the, in the poorest, humblest of circumstances. He made himself, Paul wrote, nothing, even becoming a servant. It makes sense that Box Brown would do that. It speaks of grace that God the Son would do that. Here, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 again. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider him equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Henry Brown went to a lot of trouble so that he could be free, and God the Son went to a lot of trouble so that we can be free because the unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love of God, because we are so complicated and so flawed, has been very costly for our Lord. Now let's look at the next phrase in that text. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He who alone can make a tree allowed Roman soldiers to nail him to one. He who created heaven and earth hung temporarily, voluntarily between the two. God's love for us is very costly. He bore the, the shame and the pain of all our wrongdoing. 1 Peter 2.24, he took upon himself our sins in his body on the cross. Reminds me of an old a gospel song that says, was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon a tree. And of course, the answer is a resounding yes with an exclamation point. It was indeed for crimes that I had done, that he groaned upon a tree. But the song continues. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. <clears throat> and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Mahatma Gandhi was, the, um, was a small man, but larger than life, of course. The one who, who led a, a nonviolent movement in India, the early 1900s, so that India could be freed from the colonialism of England. Mahatma Gandhi led an ashram, which is a, a, a spiritual, a Hindu community. It's, it's kind of like a, a Catholic a monastery, kind of like a, a Christian commune. They lived closely together. They did life together. They, in this ashram, they were very close. They had values and they had rules. And two members of the ashram violated the values and broke the rules of their community. I don't know what it was, but it was significant, so, so significant that it, it pained Gandhi. He said, this came upon me as a thunderbolt. I was deeply wounded, he said. 
It was so significant what they had done that the other members of the ashram suggested that these two who had violated the values and broke the rules of the group should be severely punished. But Gandhi took a different approach. For one week he fasted, did not eat, it, eat, eat anything. For four months after that, he ate one meal a day, only one meal a day. He had done nothing wrong, but he took upon himself the hurt caused to the ashram by those who had violated their values. He believed that if he took upon himself the hurt, instead of punishing the two who had done wrong, that it would, it would be beneficial to his group. And he was right. They, uh, they came to understand the importance of adhering to the values and the rules of the group. And I am not comparing Gandhi to God, but you see where I'm going with this. If you compare what Gandhi did, or excuse me, if you multiply what Gandhi did, times the number of people who have breathed the air of this planet, which is over 100 billion. And if you multiply that number by the number of sins committed by every person, a, a number that is incalculable, then you begin to see how costly is the unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love of God, who became obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. The good and beautiful God has been rejected, dismissed, wounded, and scarred. And yet he continues to search. He continues to reach. He continues to invite. This good and beautiful God of which we've spoken for these weeks, he who is good and trustworthy and generous and who is love itself and who is holy, has been wounded and scarred, has been dismissed and rejected. And yet he continues to seek, he continues to look, he continues to extend his hand. He continues to invite. G. Campbell Morgan was a lot like Billy Graham, except he was British and lived in the early 1900s. G. Campbell Morgan had a passion, of course, for people who were far from God. And he, he traveled all over England preaching, helping people understand what it would mean to turn from their sins and follow Jesus and find redemption and forgiveness and, and deliverance. And he was preaching once in a mining camp to a bunch of miners, M-I-N-E-R-S. And he was looking for some way to communicate this, this redemption, this salvation, this deliverance and, and how costly it was for God. And, and he he had an idea. He was preaching one night and he singled out one of the miners and he, he asked him, how did you get back at the end of your shift? How did you get, how did you get from the, that deep, dark place where you were? How did you get back up to, to fresh air and, and, and the land you love and your family? He said, well, I, I got on the elevator. Ah, said G. Campbell Morgan. So, did it cost anything? No, the miner said, I just, I just stepped into it. Oh, said G. Campbell Morgan. But did the elevator cost someone something? Well, yes, the miner said, it cost the man. 
the owner of the company who paid a great price to put that elevator shaft down into a deep and dark mine. So Campbell, said, Campbell Morgan said uh, to the miners, so it cost you nothing, but it cost someone a great deal. And all the miners began to get it. That this deliverance, this salvation of which G. Campbell Morgan preached so passionately would come as no cost to the one who would accept it, but was in fact very costly uh, to the one who offered it. God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love for us as complicated and flawed as we are remains very costly to him. He who has loved with a love beyond our imagination has been rejected and dismissed and wounded and scarred and continues to search and continues to look and continues to invite. And we have come to a really important juncture, a really important point in this study of the good and beautiful God. We have seen, we have seen that God is good and love and trustworthy and generous and holy. At this point, it's been all about His attributes. But today we come face to face with the, with the truth that we are not by nature good and not by nature holy. We come to the point today in this study to say that we were born, each one of us, with, a, with what the Bible calls a sinful nature, an overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing. And that all of us have, have made choices that are bad for us and, and hurtful to other people. That we all have an overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing and that we are sinners by nature and by choice. That is the juncture at which we have arrived. And we have a choice to make. If I could return to G. Campbell Morgan's sermon to the miners for a moment. Remember what he said? He said to the miner, how did you get up out of that deep, dark, dangerous place? Well, I stepped onto the, the elevator. Did it cost you anything? No, it didn't cost me anything. Oh, they, oh but it did cost the man. It cost the man. The elevator is waiting, if you will. And you have to step into it. Now, I know that across this room, in front of me and behind me and in the balcony, uh, most of you in this room, at some point in your lives, that as children, as teenagers, as adults, stepped into that elevator, took a step of faith and commitment to say, I understand the cost, sort of, and I turn from what is wrong and I... I ask God to, for forgiveness and I ask Him for new birth and new life and whatever was the prayer around that that you prayed, you stepped into that elevator. But, but there are lots of people, not only in this room and on television, the internet, people who are watching who may have not yet have stepped into the elevator. You've studied the elevator. You've heard people talk about the elevator. 
In fact, if push come to shove, you could probably describe the elevator to lots of people. But to this point, you have remained on the bubble. You have remained on the outside looking in. And today is the time we come to that point where the invitation is given with perhaps more clarity than any week in this whole study for someone to step into the elevator. In just a few minutes, in just a very short few few moments, we're going to to celebrate communion where we, we mourn and celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus. But even as we prepare for that, I... I, I, I invite that person on the bubble, wherever you are in this room or wherever you are across North Alabama, to step into that elevator, to say at this moment, without waiting, I will trust all that I have and all that I am to the Lord Jesus. And I will trust him and not my own goodness for here and forever. And to that end, and in preparation for communion, would you pray with me, please? Lord, we pause at this, what feels to me like such an important, sacred, pivotal, life-shaping moment for someone or some someones. I pray for the wisdom and the courage of people who are still uh, on the bubble uh, to, to step into the elevator, as it were, to give all that they have and all that they are to Jesus and and begin this journey of following him toward life at its best and toward life that never ends. And as uh, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion together, I pray that you would all at the same time convict us of our sin and overwhelm us with your grace, that we might in this moment experience the, 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 the emotional mixture of sadness and elation, of gratitude and regret, remembering that it was indeed for our sins, sins that we had committed, that he groaned upon the tree. We celebrate and remember and are grateful for amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. In the name of the one who gave so much, we pray these things. Amen.